0: right, if you'll pick up, back up with me in Deuteronomy chapter 26, we'll make some ground tonight, almost the entirety of the chapter, Deuteronomy 26, starting at verse 1, and we'll pick up the rest next week. These may seem like dry things when you read them, they are happy things. Oh, to be there for this. Verse 1, when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance and have taken possession of it and live in it, you shall take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground which you harvest from your land that the Lord your God is giving you and you shall put it in a basket. You shall go to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there and you shall go to the priest who is in office at that time and say to him, I declare today, to the Lord your God that I have come into the land that the Lord swore to our fathers to give to us then the priest shall take the basket from your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God and you shall make response before the Lord your God a wandering aramean was my father and he went down into egypt and sojourned there few in number and there he became a nation great mighty and populous and the egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us and laid on us hard labor And we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm, with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. He brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And Behold now, I bring the first of the fruit of the ground, which you, O Lord, have given me. You shall set it down before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. And you shall rejoice in all the good that the Lord your God has given to you and to your house, you and the Levite and the sojourner who is among you. When you have finished paying all the tithe of your produce in the third year, which is the year of tithing, give it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow so that they may eat within your towns and be filled. Then you shall say before the Lord your God, I have removed the sacred portion out of my house, and moreover, I have given it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, according to all your commandment that you have commanded me. I have not transgressed any of your commandments, nor have I forgotten them. I have not eaten of the tithe while I was mourning, or removed any of it while I was unclean, or offered any of it to the dead. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord my God. I have done according to all that you have commanded me. Look down from your holy habitation from heaven, Bless your people Israel and the ground that you have given us as you swore to our fathers a land flowing with milk and honey. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we read this, of your beautiful provision for your people, for your law is righteous and true, even as you are, O Lord. We pray, would you give to us the heart that's reflected in this? A heart of gratefulness, Father. A heart that that gives for the right reasons. And Lord, would you give us this kind of joy? Would you safely deliver us, O Lord, someday to the very reality that all this points to? That's still before us. Pray that all of us would be there. uh, Celebrating in this way, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We have made it to the Tenth Commandment. For months now, we've been walking through Deuteronomy's exposition of the Ten Commandments. The case laws we're looking at tonight, they're all about overcoming covetousness. Like the Tenth Commandment, thou shalt not covet. So, let's just talk about coveting for a second, shall we? We do it all the time, and isn't it just awful? How it feels to covet, what it's like to covet, the effect of coveting, and Question 148 of our catechism, our larger catechism, defines it this way. It says, uh, coveting is discontentment with our own estate, so we're not happy with what we've got, envying and grieving at the good of our neighbor, not liking when they're happy, together with all inordinate motions and affections to anything that's his. So when you covet, you're unhappy with the things in your life, you're unhappy with things going well in someone else's life, and you're jealously grasping and clawing after your neighbor's good things. So coveting if you think about it, it's basically a little slice of hell. It's 100% the opposite of the spirit of heaven. But I think the most important question at this point is, okay, well, we get it. We've experienced it. We know how do we stop doing it? Coveting's tricky because out of all the covenants, out of all the commandments, it's the most clear that it's a sin of the heart, and it's not like you can just tell your heart Just stop it, stop coveting, and just do it. So the beautiful thing about our case laws for tonight is that not only are they the exact opposite of coveting, but they actually call for ceremonies that have sort of an anti-coveting medicine baked into them. So the two ceremonies we're talking about tonight, they're like heart training for a covetous heart. They're help for breaking a covetous heart. And so tonight we'll look at first, we'll look at the first fruit ceremony, and second we'll look at the tithing ceremony in that order, and then we'll see what they have to teach our hearts today. So let's go to the first fruit ceremony first. So the first law we come across, it tells God's people, okay, hold a simple first fruit ceremony. Now Israel is always supposed to bring their first fruits after each harvest, Uh, That would happen each year during the Feast of Weeks and sometimes even during offerings and different things like that. But this law is talking about the first first fruit ceremony that they'd ever have. Because they never had any land before. So this is the absolute first. And it's the ceremony they're supposed to have as soon as they settled the land and had their first harvest. As soon as verse 1 says they come into the land, take possession of it, and live in it. That's the progression. Then God says, have this first fruit ceremony. So let's look a little more in depth at this ceremony. It seems to me it's calling for them to do three things. It's my Russian egg of a sermon. It's points into points. And so first, first thing is they would give God a gift of first fruits at his temple. It's the first part. Give to God. That's the first part of the ceremony. Verse two, you'll take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground, which you harvest from your land that the Lord your God is giving you. And you shall put it in a basket. You shall go to the place that the Lord your God will choose. It will be the temple eventually to make his name dwell there. So you notice the people, the first thing they do in the ceremony is they, they give God all their first fruits. They're supposed to give to God the first and the best of everything that they grew. Now I think a lot of you have grown things, and you know how hard that would be. After weeks of planting things and watering things and weeding things by the sweat of your brow... You know how excited you are to eat that, those first things that appear on your vine, to eat the first red raspberry, the first red strawberry, the first ripe tomato. It would be even better if you uh, were eating the things you can from last year up until that moment. And if you're an Israelite, you, you couldn't just pop them in your mouth. Say, ah, I've grown this. You, you're supposed to take them, put them in a basket, and give them to the Lord. So it's supposed to reflect a God-first mentality in the hearts of his people, it's an opportunity to do that. And I actually think it was meant to build a God-first mentality in his people. Because before the people enjoy all the wonderful things God's given them, first they're supposed to pause and remember, mm, that's right, this is all from God. And then they're supposed to pause and remember, that's right, this is all for God. God's first. God's best, God gave it, God comes first, and... It's all about God. It's supposed to remind them it's all about God. has to be why Moses repeats over and over again. As you read this, maybe you noticed this. He repeats seven times in this chapter the phrase that the Lord your God is giving you, lest they forget. Verse 1, when you come into the land, that the Lord your God is giving you. Verse 2, the fruit of the ground which you harvest from your land, that the Lord your God is giving you. Verse 9, he brought you to this place, and he gave you this land. Verse 11, you shall rejoice in all the good that the Lord your God has given you. I go on, there's three more, but the first thing this ceremony calls for is give God your first fruits. Give to God. That's first. Second, the ceremony calls for a declaration, for the people to stand and, and declare something, something about God's faithfulness. So they bring their first fruits to the priest, and now they have something they're supposed to say. He actually gives them the script. They have to declare that God has kept all of his promises. He's just blessed them, now declare it. He's done everything he said he would do. Verse 3, they're supposed to say, in a ritual that's supposed to come from the heart, of course, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come into the land that the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. That promise from ancient days, they're supposed to say. They're supposed to stand and testify in the temple, God, you did it. You actually did it. You kept your promise from of old. And I, can you believe it? I am the beneficiary of your promise. I have lived to see the day when I would get this land. But not only are they supposed to declare that God has given them what he promised, they're supposed to recount all the hardships that God overcame in order to do it. So again, verse 5, it tells them, say this, say this. A wandering Aramean, or Syrian, was my father, that'd be Jacob, He went down into Egypt and sojourned there, few in number, and there he became a nation, great, mighty, and populous, and the Egyptians treated us harshly, humiliated us, laid on us hard labor. Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice, saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders, and he brought us into this place, gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Do you see how this is just a rehearsal? This is a rehearsal of everything that God had brought them through to be faithful to give them the promise. So you get this straight. You're an Israelite. You're basically saying, not only did he give us this land, but he gave us this land despite the messiness of Jacob's life, despite our humble origins, despite harsh oppression from the mightiest nation on earth, despite centuries worth of waiting, despite our own unbelief, He's faithful through all of it. So you put it all together and you get Israel's grand declaration. It's Israel's creed, sort of, through it all. God, you've been faithful to give what you said you would give. You gave us exactly what you promised despite impossible odds. That's their declaration. And then the third part of the ceremony, uh, after they gave something to God to put him first, after they declared his faithfulness, Then they worshipped. So, second half of verse 10. You shall set it down before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. And you will rejoice at that. You will rejoice in all the good that the Lord your God has given you and to your house. You and the Levite and the sojourner among you. Now comes the party part of the ceremony. Now comes the singing and the celebrating probably the feasting most of my commentaries say well all the other first fruit ceremonies involve a big feast Moses is probably calling for a feast here a feast for the grateful a feast for their families a feast for the clergy thank you very much a feast for the poor it was a time to reflect and smile as a whole community God did this a time to praise God thank him cry with gladness and so, boy, who would mind bringing in your first fruits when it leads to something like that? Because that's always how it is with God. You, you put Him as your first and your best, and He blesses you, blesses you in the ways that you need. And so that's, that's the first fruit ceremony. Now, just a short word of application for this you take all the pieces of this ceremony together. And I want you to see what rises to the top, what sentiment rises to the top. You've got a gift for God, a declaration of his faithfulness, a worship party. And I think what rises to the top in all of that is is gratefulness. Gratefulness. Yeah, I think this entire ceremony is given to Israel as an expression of gratefulness and as an aid to gratefulness. So you just think about what a powerful antidote this ceremony would be to the sin of covetousness. I actually think that's why it's here in the 10th commandment section. Because if covetousness is all about discontentment, I'm not happy with what I have. This ceremony is the complete antidote to that. It's about, well, you bring a portion of all these blessings that God's given you, overflowing blessings. You stand and declare you've been faithful in everything you've done. And then you worship and celebrate. That's the exact opposite of discontentment. So I think this ceremony is pointing out that one of the biggest keys for overcoming covetousness in our hearts It's gratefulness. Because you you take stock of your heart one day and you realize, you know, I'm miserable with what I've got going on. so darn bitter at this guy, this girl. I mean, wouldn't it be nice if I had what they have? Or how come they get to do XYZ, PDQ? And, well, you know what you need then, don't you? you? You need a good dose of gratefulness. You need to lift your eyes off your own misery for a second, put them on the Lord, put them on all the things he's brought you, In the old covenant, he says, okay, bring your first fruits. May I suggest taking stock of your blessings and then offering something to him. I bet if you look, you'll be able to identify all kinds of blessings that he's baked into you, into your life. You turn them to his service, and then he has a way of giving that which is truly life, like he says in Timothy. You bring your first fruits. Or... In the old covenant, they were told, declare his faithfulness, declare his faithfulness. Well, might I suggest, covetors, devoting some of your quiet times just to thanking God. Set aside some time, just thank him for an hour. Or declaring to someone, this God has been so good to me. He did this for me. He did this for me. I know one of the most refreshing things I do from time to time is I take a break from regular prayer schedule and I just go for a walk and I thank God for like a solid hour. And you know how you feel when you get done thanking God for like a solid hour? You think, oh, a, I don't know if I'd be able to think of that many things. Oh, you'll, pff, yeah. Uh, you could thank him for all eternity. So you can do it for an hour. Uh, or on birthdays or anniversaries, uh, you, you ever do this? You just trace all the ways that he's been faithful to you over the years, through your whole life, through your kid's whole life, through your marriage's whole life. And, or just make sure you come to our Thanksgiving prayer meeting next Sunday. We're going to do exactly this. This is a great Thanksgiving sermon, by the way and um and then they were told they were told bring him your first fruits declare his faithfulness which i'm calling you to do by the way not just in your private prayer time but wouldn't it be nice if you're thinking i'm not very good at small talk if in your small talk it was centered around the ways god has been good to the people around you and to you it's a good maybe think of that next time you're thinking grasping for something oh the weather sports i don't know uh declares faithfulness. Okay, and then they were told to worship because don't neglect the assembling together, Hebrews says. There's there's no better medicine for a covetous heart than to lift your eyes up and out and to praise God. Hard to be bitter when you're gathered around a table with all his family, all your family. It's the anti-covet. That's why this sermon's called the anti-covet. So brothers and sisters, fight your covetousness with gratefulness just like God's law intended all along. So that's the first fruit ceremony. Now let's look at the tithing ceremony. Um, it's actually the third year tithing ceremony. So by way of reminder, because I forgot, uh, we heard about this back in chapter 14. On most years, the people would just bring a tenth of everything they had to the temple, and it would be used for the upkeep of the temple, the religious system, it would feed the priests, who don't we don't produce anything, things like that. It was... Kind of like our church's general fund. But every third year, uh, they would store up all their tithes in the town that they lived for the care of the poor. It was actually a lot more like our deacon fund. Well, the ceremony we read about tonight, it would take place after the third year. The people would uh, take care of this third year tithe, and then they'd go up to the temple later, and they'd do a ceremony saying, I did that. I was back in my town, God, I, I did that thing. And this ceremony seemed to include two elements. First, the ceremony, obviously, it involves giving to the poor. And not just giving to the poor as they felt fit, it was giving to the poor collectively, corporately, giving to the poor through their town. And look at verse, like, like we do, look at verse 12. When you have finished paying all the tithe of your produce in the third year, which is the year of tithing, give it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that they may eat within your towns and be filled So that's what the third year tithe is for, it's for putting something aside for Levites who don't have any land, uh, for the sojourners who are far from their land, and for orphans and widows who really don't have anything, or if they have land they can't work it. And so the first ceremony involves giving, giving to the poor, second it involves giving with the right kind of heart. So again, the Israelites have a script to follow, they have another declaration to make, but this time, their words are trying to express their hearts. They're trying to express, okay, I gave, I did what you told me to do, but I, I did it the right way. That's what they're declaring now. They're declaring their innocence. They're declaring their intentions uh, in both a negative direction and a positive direction. Like Negatively, the people declare, I'm not giving idolatrously. I'm not giving the wrong way. Verse 13, you shall say before the Lord your God, I have removed the sacred portion out of my house. Moreover, I have given it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, according to all your commandment that you've commanded me. I've not transgressed any of your commandments, nor have I forgotten them. I've not eaten of the tithe while I was in mourning, or removed any of it while I was unclean, or offered any of it to the dead. And all this, the Israelites basically saying, he's saying, my hands are clean. I did this the right way. I've given my third year tithe, just like you asked. I haven't held any of it back for myself. I haven't been like uh, Ananias and Sapphira, I haven't done any of the pagan customs that my neighbors do with their offerings. That's what all this stuff is about, giving to the dead or doing it in mourning, we think. I'm, I'm not giving according to a Canaanite mourning ritual. I'm not giving offerings to the dead. I'm not, not doing the idolatrous stuff. Israelites are declaring, my heart has not been idolatrous. My heart has not been about my money. My heart has been not been about other gods. We've been true to you, God. We've been true to you in our giving. You've kept all your promises. Now I'm giving to you. I have a good heart. And in a more positive direction, the Israelites are also, they're declaring that they trust God as they give. So that's verse 15. The people say, they're supposed to, here's the script. Look down from your holy habitation. It's a prayer from heaven and bless your people, Israel, and the ground that you have given us, As you swore to our fathers, a land flowing with milk and honey. So the people are declaring their faith. They're saying, God, we're giving back to you in faith. We're praying to you that you'll keep the promises that you've made. But since you've already given us so much, we also give with confidence, knowing that even as we give, you've sworn to give us more. We're giving in the hopes of more. So that people are able to give freely because they know that God has sworn to bless them and that's what they're holding him to. That's what they're calling him to do. Bless us like you said. Now you put all this together for a second. You've got a tithe for the poor and another declaration, a two-sided declaration, a declaration of God, we've not been idolatrous. The money's not stuck to our hands. Instead, we've trusted you. We're depending on you. Please help us. So what rises to the top of this ceremony, I think, is, well, it's gratefulness, sure, but I think it's a cheerful heart. I think it's a faithful heart. It's the kind of good heart that Paul's calling for when he says God loves a cheerful giver. Because this is who God calls us to give to, the needy. And that's what they're doing. This is how God calls us to give, trusting him alone, happily, And so why do you see this in the 10th Commandment section? Well, again, this is the exact opposite of discontentment and grasping for what somebody else has. This is all about being grateful and giving from what God has already given you in faith. So now I ask, what could be a better cure for covetousness than cheerful, faith-filled giving? It almost sounds counterintuitive, though, doesn't it? Uh, I'm not happy with what I have so you're telling me to give more away. But what I want you to see is that generosity to the poor is like a crowbar that pries off covetousness. When you give to the poor, you're prying your eyes off of yourself and you're putting it on another who's less fortunate. When you give to the needy, you gain some perspective. You see your plenty and others lack and you say, okay, well, I, what am I complaining about? When you give to the poor, God promises, well, I'll bless you more in the ways that matter most, in the ways that God thinks matters the most. And the lesson here, when you're thoroughly discontent with your life, when you're burning up with jealousy, get over yourself and give to someone. Uh, Give to get over yourself. That seems to be what this third year tithing ceremony was designed to do. In addition to glorifying God, it would shape the people into a less covetous people. All right, those are our two ceremonies, the first fruit ceremony and the tithing ceremony now for my long conclusion, which has two points. I'm really excited for this conclusion, not because I'm tired of the sermon, but because there are two more things I'm very excited to talk about. That when I was studying, I thought, I can't wait to talk about that. So first of all, I just want to talk about the important function of these ceremonies, how that carries forward to this day. The beautiful thing about these ceremonies is they, they gave the people a reliable occasion to turn away from covetousness and to turn toward gratefulness to God. So they, give, they provided a moment to stir up thanks and express thanks And they provided a mechanism for shaping their heart in the right direction towards thanks. When you're made to do these kinds of ceremonies, and do them all the time, it has that effect. So reflecting on these laws this week, I kept thinking, well, this is just so wise. What a wonderful thing. I wish we had something like this. And then all at once I realized, we do. We have Sunday worship. It's the same thing. You can find, I challenge you, I think you can find all of the elements of the first fruit ceremony in our worship services today. Every week, we strive to give God our first and our best. We give him tenth of our income, first tenth of our income at least. We give him the first day of the week. Say, that's for you, God. Uh, Every week, we gather, what do we do but thank him for all our many blessings? What do we do in worship? But we make declarations. We declare God's faithfulness here. Christ's faithfulness to deliver us from sin, deliver us from death. Spirit's faithfulness, you brought me through another week. You're growing this in me. You're helping this other person. and our church, we actually feast together, just like God always calls his people to do. I I challenge you, I think all the elements of the first fruit uh, ceremony are, are still with us. It's not just the pieces of the first fruit ceremony that show up today, though I think the tithing ceremonies, the pieces of it, Deconstructed still show up in our worship today. Don't get worried about the deconstruction word. That's not what I mean. But because every week we have occasion to give to those who are less fortunate. Whether it's through the diaconal offering, which I see some huge parallels to, or a whole church ministry where we gather our funds together to give to this person or this cause or Or whether it's just showing up and connecting with each other and finding out, well, how can I help you this week, brother? How can I help you this week, sister? Ooh, they need that. Okay, I'll find out. I'll do what I can there. And I know every time we give, we try to give with the right heart. We try to say, I'm not letting it cling to me too closely. I'm not doing it idolatrously. I know at least we pray that God would help us to give with the right heart. That's our constant prayer for our tithes and offerings. Not clinging to our money, not putting our faith in the things of this world, giving in faith, because he's given us everything we need. So, in this way, every worship service is an opportunity to give and, not just to give, but to cultivate in ourselves a heart of trust. Every week, he pries that check out of your hand or out of your phone or whatever, and it's just come and trust me more. Come and trust me more. And so what God has given us in our worship services is he's given us a really important means of bending our hearts away from covetousness and toward him. Every week you get to come and grow a little bit, a little bit more along the trellis of his word, the trellis of his worship. Every week you come, you you get to be slowly molded by by prayer, by the example of these fine people around you. And so may these laws grow call you to the faithful use of the ceremony that he's given you. Not having a first fruit ceremony anymore or a tithing ceremony anymore. He's given you this. He's given you what you're in right now. And it's no empty thing for you. I think sometimes we, we hope that every church service will just kind of kaboom us and change us and give us these revelations and epiphanies. And he says, I think God normally works in a way where He, every week he's just slowly molding you, slowly changing you even as he did in the ceremonies of old, when they're done from the heart. Well, I have one more thing to say about this passage. My most exciting thing. uh, One of the things I noticed about these ceremonies, you look at the context, they're both celebrations after the fact. Notice he's saying, do these things after I've blessed you. The text is clear. Both ceremonies are supposed to be done after Israel had entered the land and they started enjoying God's promised blessings. So the order is, get all this great stuff from God, stand in the fulfillment of his promise, and then celebrate. Celebrate with these rewards and these ceremonies. And it occurs to me that this is so much our situation today. I mean, every week at worship, we celebrate as those who have come into a far greater fulfillment of all of God's promises. So when we worship, get this. We don't just worship saying, well, you've given us lots of milk and honey. You've given us lots of nice dirt and land and all these things. But we worship following salvation accomplished and applied. We worship following the the growing worldwide witness of his church, including all the nations. We worship in possession of all kinds of spiritual blessings, peace, joy, sanctification, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We worship as those who are in possession of so many of God's promises. We stand there and we bring our gifts and our worship saying, and we have an even greater declaration that we can make. That's actually not even where I wanted to go with this, though, because I can do even better. We can do even better. I read this typologically. And I think the grand fulfillment of these ceremonies will be when Jesus finally returns. On the last day. On the day when we are in full enjoyment. All of his promises. That day when we inherit the land. You have your slice of eternity. Your slice of the new heavens and the new earth. You can scarcely believe it. You did it. Someday you'll bring him all your first fruits. Every ability that you have. Everything you've ever done. You're going to cast him at his feet. The kings of the earth will bring them all their treasures. You'll bring in the praises of the just made perfect. And imagine the declarations we'll be able to make then. God, you were faithful through the alienation of all humanity and a worldwide flood. God, you were faithful through the destruction of your covenant people in Babylon and through, and through centuries of tribulation on the earth. God, though we were rebels... Though we were condemned, you carried us through a lifetime of sin and a lifetime of misery, through waves of satanic deception and worldly oppression, through death and hell itself, into this land. We'll say it in that land. Say it in that land. A land flowing with much more than milk and honey. A land which our sanctified imaginations can't even begin to fathom. And in that land, you'll feast with him. All of us together, I'm looking forward to seeing you there. If you make it there before me, then wait and let's get excited. All of us together will worship around his throne. Oh, there's a song that we sing in youth groups sometimes. That's why uh, Jeff Roach has so graciously, um, and Jenna, have graciously uh, humored me uh, by Sandra McCracken. We sing it in youth group. It always makes me tear up. And the refrain goes, as I sing it with the youth groupers, We will feast in the house of Zion. We will sing with our hearts restored. He has done great things, we will say together. We will feast and weep no more. And that's exactly what we'll do. Uh, As this dimly outlines, as this more brightly outlines, but then it will be brighter than the brightest day. Doesn't your heart long for that day? Imagine, and I ask you, is that not worth your first fruits? All your first fruits. Is that not worth your charity? Is that not worth waking up and dragging your family here week after week for worship so you can grow in that direction? And what sense does it make for a son or daughter of God to covet? We have everything to look forward to in Christ. Everything. Everything. Amen. Let's pray. So, Heavenly Father, in long continuity with what your people have always been called to do and do, we do declare, O Lord, you have put us in possession of so many great and precious promises in Christ. We praise you. We thank you, Lord. We pray that you would give us faith. Keep us by your by your common means of grace, O Lord. Keep us growing in the direction towards that great day. May we all achieve it. May we all make it. Us and those whom we love, O Lord. May we gather even more of our friends and family into this great fellowship that we have with you and with one another. And, O Lord, we just thank you and we plead with you to keep us in the way. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.